Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. I'm very glad you're here. I send a special welcome out to those of you who are visiting with us this morning. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy right here in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Whoever you are, whoever you love, whatever body you live in, you are welcome here. And now will you say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Good morning, friends. I'm Kai Flannery. I'm a new worship leader, and I'm excited to be here this morning. I'm a chaplain also at Seton Medical Center, so I'm pretty new to Austin. Um, And our our opening reading this morning comes from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, a social condition, to know that even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, That is to have succeeded. Every Sunday here, we have people in the room with backgrounds, roots, practices, and every major world religion. Also in no religion. Also staunch atheists, secular humanists, neo-pagans, etc. I'm thinking, I just started thinking about a friend of mine who calls herself a Zen Presbyterian. And another guy in a church I used to serve who called himself a redneck Hindu. What holds us together, given all that? One of the things that holds this congregation together is its mission statement. And we wrote it on the wall and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Each Sunday we take time together to have contemplation and meditation, and our reading to open up that time today again comes from Ralph Waldo Emerson. A person will worship something, have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret, in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Now is the time in our service when we breathe together deeply. When we enter an attitude of meditation and prayer, where we speak to God as we understand God or just listen to our wisdom that is inside each one of us. Let us enter the wise silence together. Understanding that in this congregation, noises of life and the noises of small babies are part of silence. Silence. 
You heard in our meditation reading Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of our Unitarian forebears who liked to be called Waldo. He hated Ralph. He said, a person will worship something. So when I talk about right intention today, which is the second strand of the Eightfold Buddhist Path, it is that something that we're worshiping inside, that something that is at the core of our being that we're talking about. The Buddha said that your view of existence shapes your focus, your habits of attention. And your focus, your view, shapes your thoughts. And your thoughts shape your actions, and your actions shape your life and the world. And so the way to start is with the right view, the right understanding of what the world is. The Buddha, sitting under the tree, meditating, noticed that there were two kinds of thoughts, as he uh, categorized them. One group of thoughts were about things you want and things you're scared of and things you're hungry for and things you you don't have and what might happen to you in the future and what somebody did to you and how mad you are, your resentments and somebody did better than you and they shouldn't have and 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 you you have these thoughts that oh, I wish I could just make things right and I know I know the it would be hurtful for a while but it would make things right in the end. Those kinds of thoughts lead to pain. And the other kinds of thoughts, which are thoughts of kindness, thoughts of contentment. I'm, I'm so grateful for what I have. Um, I'm living in this moment, and I'm, I'm grateful for this very moment. I'm not trying to be somewhere else and here at the same time. I'm thinking kind thoughts toward other people. I'm forgiving other people. I'm, I'm letting go of anything that would cause harm, that those thoughts lead to happiness. So if you have a life filled with the one kind of thought, he said that pain will follow you like a, like a cart follows an ox. And if you have the other kind of thoughts, then happiness follows you like a shadow that's just attached to your heels. It's there wherever you are. So the first strand of the path we talked about last month, the right understanding, and that is that you get it, that there are four truths about the world. One is that life is out of joint in some way. There's something wrong. There's suffering. We tend to tell each other stories about what happened. We have stories about our pain this shouldn't have happened, or I did something wrong, or I'm being punished, or this is never going to end, or the stories that we tell about our pain cause suffering. Um, And life just has suffering in it anyway. So the second truth is that the suffering is caused by craving, by the craving for whatever you're craving. I want to be happy. I want to be safe. I want to be completely secure, I want whatever you're craving. And that the way to let go 
uh, that, that the way to let go of most of your suffering is to let go of your craving. That's the third truth. And the fourth truth is the way to let go of craving is to practice this eightfold path. So that's what we talked about last month. And today we're talking about the second strand of the path, which is right intention. And um, it's okay to aim for freedom of suffering. That's not a craving. That's just the way everybody's built. You just want to be free from suffering. You want to be um, as free as you can be. And you want, if you're the kind of person you would become if you followed this eightfold path, you want everybody to be free from suffering. So the Buddha invited us to have three intentions that would guide us in this right intention path. And I'm going to tell you about those in a minute. But first, I'm going to talk about Emerson for a second. So Emerson said, you already have an intention. There's already something that you think might be in the deep, dark recesses of your heart, but it's guiding your life. It's permeating your life. It's your mission statement. Do you want to be... Do you want to be admired above all else? Do you want to be loved above all else? Do you want to be secure and safe? Do you want to be powerful? Do you want to have have anybody in the world return your phone call if you pick up the phone and try to call them? Do you want to have anybody in the world want to want to hack into your emails and see what you were saying? Do you how do you want to be famous? Do you want to be do you want to be intelligent? Do you want to be the most intelligent person in the room? Do you want to have everybody look to you and say, well, what what do you think? We all have some things that steer us, right? I mean, if you made a, a compass for yourself and put a word at each compass point, what would those words be that guide your life? What do you steer by? There's a writer named Martha Beck who wrote a book called Steering by Starlight. And in that book, she says that in order to find your real intention, your real desire, you have to make a list of the things you want and then ask kind of a what then question about it. So you say, I really want my business to succeed. Well, what then? Well, then I would feel respect from other people and from myself. Well, what then? Well, then my my father would finally tell me he was proud of me. Well, what then? Well, then I, I wouldn't feel like such a failure. And she circles back around and says, okay, so if not feeling like a failure is your intention, are there other ways to get there? Might you short circuit that whole business success, money, respect, blah, 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 blah. Might you just go shortcut to not feeling like a failure? Because that feeling is in there. It's in here. It's not anything external. She said, she had a client who just wanted to have a baby. She said, okay, so you have a baby, then what then? Well, I would feel loved. Maybe there are other ways of feeling loved. It would be great to feel loved before you had a baby because having a baby, giving a kid the job of filling up a hole inside an adult, that's too big a job for a kid. (laughs) 
Susie Welch is a business writer, and she had a demanding job and children at home and a marriage to keep going with and um, until she used this decision-making process to end the marriage, which is another story. But um, <laughs> she writes uh, about a decision-making process called 10-10-10. And what you do is you ask yourself, um, if I make this decision, how will I feel in 10 minutes? How will I feel in 10 months? How will I feel in 10 years? Well, what will work out with this? So she used it, um, she writes that she used it when her boss asked her to run a Saturday meeting. And she knew that this would be a check in her column of good worker that she would maybe be uh, ahead for a promotion if she ran this meeting on Saturday. And yet she had promised her son that she would go to his black belt test. And so she thought, 10, 10, 10. <clears throat> in 10 minutes, if I make the decision to run this meeting... Then my boss will be very happy with me. My son will be devastated. Um, in 10 months, I'll have plenty of time to make my boss happy with me. And my son will have a tangible memory of me being there during a pinnacle event in his life. And he will understand that I love him. And in 10 years, my son will be... Um, you know, out there looking for relationships, and he will find a partner who's maybe not a workaholic and who would, who would put him first. And, you know, I, I just can't go with anything simple like that. Because <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, but... I've raised two sons, and there's really nothing um, about children that's bad, but um, you will show up at their stuff, and they have no concept of what you gave up in order to be there. <laughs> and so in 10 minutes, her boss, if she says no, I'm going to go to my son's test, 10 minutes, her boss will be mad and disappointed. Um, her son will be ecstatic, but he won't understand what she gave up to be there. In 10 months, she might be looking at the back of somebody who has the job that she wanted, and uh, her son's going to want something else by that time and continue to be disappointed, but she's going to continue to have many chances to show her love, and in 10 years, maybe he'll be looking for somebody who doesn't put him first and make their world revolve around him, and so he's a narcissistic uh, jerk. <laughs> I think the 10, 10, 10 is fun. It's like, you know, it's, it's just a quick and dirty way of looking at a choice, but I don't think it should be your Bible or anything. So I think, you know, if you go, should I take a nap or go to the gym? Okay. So in 10 minutes, you take a nap, you'll be asleep. It'll be lovely. Um, in 10 minutes, if you go to the gym, you'll be feeling virtuous and wishing you were having a nap. But then in 10 months, you'll be stronger and uh, the gym will be a habit, and instead of the nap being a habit, and then in 10 years, the gym will be so much a part of your life that you won't even see it as a decision. You just want to go to the gym. And um, I have a friend who calls it the James. She says, I, I don't know it well enough to call it gym yet. <laughs> but I think the best thing about 10-10-10 is that it makes you think all the way through about where you would like to be and who you want to be in 10 years. 
A lot of us don't do that. So you think this little decision right here is part of who I'll be in 10 years. Whenever I do a wedding, I say to the couple and to the congregation, every relationship, where your relationship is right now, is a product of 10 tiny decisions that you make every day. Little tiny decisions are what build your whole life. And so um, if you think about what I want downstream, then you can um, make that happen more easily by the tiny decisions you're making today. You can't fool yourself that this doesn't matter. It's just a day. Because really, 10 years from now is built up of many just days. I'm being quiet because some of you are figuring out how many days 10 years is. (laughs) I smelled something burning. I knew that was what was happening. And so the Buddha suggests... Three intentions. I'm going to tell you what they are. Because you're thinking ahead to the horizon. You're looking through your spyglass to the star that you steer by. He recommends, number one, that you make an intention to renounce desire. That sounds really hard. But the way he suggests that you renounce desire is that you think all the way through about whatever craving it is you have. You think, I really want this right now. How will this, if I choose this, how will, what will happen in my life? And he said that a lot of times, if you think things all the way through, you will see the suffering that's coming down the road if you make this certain choice. So, for example, um, there's a Harold Pinter play uh, can't remember the name of it right now, but it it sees an affair between a man and a woman from the end of the affair, and then as the play, when they're kind of standing in this apartment they rented so that they could meet each other, and they're going, oh, you want to give it up? You want to? Yeah, I'll give it up too. And then they're kind of standing at opposite ends of the kitchen. You can tell every spark is dead between them. And then you go in the play back, and there's a movie too, backwards through the affair to the point where they meet where he comes in on her at a party in her dressing room and she's brushing her hair and she looks in the mirror and she sees him and he sees her. And you want to go, don't do it. (laughs) The Buddha says if you think all the way through about the cravings that you have, you can see which ones are going to bring you suffering and pain. And... um, then as you look with clarity on what's going to happen, the craving falls away, he says, like autumn leaves from a tree. Because we all know that suppressing desire has not worked since the dawn of time. It doesn't work. Everybody tries it. But really thinking it all the way through works the best when it works. Okay, so number one, you make an intention to renounce craving. Number two, you make an intention to have goodwill towards everyone, even toward all beings. How do you have goodwill toward everyone? I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Number three, the intention is to do no harm. And if you have these three intentions, happiness will follow. Um, 
Maybe. Times can still get rough. But these three intentions are like, you know when people climb Everest, um, many of you know I'm obsessed with people climbing Everest. When they climb Everest, they go ahead or they send Sherpas, who are more expert climbers, ahead to, do, to set fixed ropes. And so basically, you can follow the ropes all the way up to the top, mostly. And um, except for the parts that are straight up and down. And then the ropes don't help you. It's, it's as if your intention sets the fixed ropes as you go. So when your child gets sick or when you lose your business or when you have a huge judgment against you that's going to wipe you out financially, you can keep a hold of the rope and remember where you're going. Even though there's a whiteout and you're sun blind and snow blind and you can't hear anything, you're on the rope. Does that make sense? So it doesn't, nothing about the Eightfold Path promises that you're going to have a sweet life. But it promises that while your life is happening, you will be able to stay rooted in your peace. So intention forms your thoughts. And gives rise to your actions. So an intention is not really a feeling. An intention is an action plan. It's a, it's a goal that you make. Um, Scarlett O'Hara set an intention at the end of the movie, or in the middle of the movie, where she's in the sunset and in the field with the carrot, and she goes, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. That is setting an intention. And that shaped her life from that moment on. For the rest of the movie. You may have shaped an intention by making a decision when you were really young. Like, that really hurt. I'm not going to be around that again. Or, I hate getting broken up with, so I'm not going to be in another relationship. Or, um, whatever. People make decisions when they're little and they affect your whole life. Marilyn Monroe said, I, I want to be wonderful. That was her intention. I think she did pretty well, at least in public. So, to be content. That's to renounce desire is to be content. You think ahead. The Buddha said it. Susie Welch said it. She stole it straight from the Buddha. Because he thought of all the good stuff first. <laughs> Once you get clarity, you can see what should be happening. And in order to get clarity, you need to be still. But clarity keeps you from being in one place, doing things, and wishing you were in another place. You know what I mean? That's called double-mindedness. Single-mindedness, I'm in this place and I want to be in this place, if I don't want to be in this place, I'm going to do something else. So contentment is a practice, and you have to practice and practice and practice. Second part of the intention, to have goodwill toward all beings. Now, having goodwill is also practice. Practice, practice, practice. You have to notice your thoughts of non-goodwill when they happen and replace them with thoughts of goodwill. 
the Buddha said practicing is like hammering a nail in, you know, hammering a, a healthy peg in where there was a rotten peg before. So you practice having thoughts of goodwill. And whenever you look at the television and think, I just want to strangle him, you think, may he be free from danger. May he be mentally happy. May he be physically happy. May he have ease of well-being. That's the metta meditation prayer that the Buddha, um, in other words, recommended for us to change our resentful thoughts and our violent thoughts. I've told you all before about a friend who learned about the resentment prayer in the 12-step program, which is the same thing. And it's a prayer where you say for the other person everything that you want for yourself. And she was having resentment toward her mother. And so her sponsor said, I want you to pray, Dorothy, I want you to pray for your mother. And I want you to pray for everything in her life that, that she would have everything in her life that you want in yours. So you're going to pray that she would have good relationships, good health, good family, financial stability, etc. And Dorothy said, I drew myself up in horror and I said, but I wouldn't mean that. <laughs> and her sponsor said, Dorothy, you don't have to mean it. You just have to do it. And she said, but that would make me a hypocrite. And her sponsor said, Dorothy, you're a drunk. God forbid you should be a hypocrite. So one way to have goodwill is to pray the resentment prayer for people against whom you have resentments. And it is pretty magical because you don't have to believe in prayer and you don't have to mean it. It still works. It doesn't change them because I've been trying. It changes you. Now, if you intend harmlessness, you're going to have to figure out what harmlessness is. And you can paralyze yourself if you're a good Unitarian Universalist by saying, oh, I can't make a step until I know exactly what harmlessness means. Mm -mm. You have some ideas of low-hanging fruit of harm that you might be doing that you can be willing to let go of. You can just let go of the low-hanging fruit first. And then you can do the upper-level thinking of, um, does wearing leather, is that harmful? Do I want to get rid of wearing leather? Do I want to eat vegan because it's a more compassionate way of eating and it does less harm than um, eating meat? So many people are at that level, but other people are at like, you know, I'm just not going to yell at my kids today. Not that that's easy, having raised children, I know. And they're raising children now. (laughs) I'm laughing with them, not at them. So all of this takes practice. Practice, practice, practice. That's all. So notice the intentions that guide your life. That's what I'm asking you to do today. What is your mission statement, whether you know it or not, whether you've written it on the wall or not? And you might want to pick one out that you could write on the wall and say every day and make your life. This is one from Rumi that I'll end with. Be a lamp, a light, a lifeboat, a ladder. Help someone's soul heal. Walk out of your house like a shepherd. Will you say with me the words by which we extinguish the chalice?
We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. The benediction is a sung call and response meta-meditation, loving-kindness meditation. The words are, should you choose to participate, you may be one last spark. We all need to light the whole world. So I sing a line and you sing it after me. You may be one last spark. We all need to light the whole world. Wonderful. So now we sing it and we sing it for ourselves. You may be one last spark. We all need to light the whole world. Now you sing it for somebody you love. You may be one last spark. We all need to light the whole world. As the final exam of Meta, you sing it for somebody that you have a resentment against. Again, good news, don't have to mean it. <laughs> you got somebody? Here we go. <laughs> you may be, you may be. One, last spark. one last spark. We all need to light the whole world. I want to put a lot of caveats on that. Like maybe you're light the whole world, even though you're terrible. Um, we can use you as a negative example. Of, uh, the Buddha did not recommend any of that. So let's heal our spirits by singing it for ourselves again. Um. No, let's kind of, this half of the congregation look over at that half, and this half look over at that half, and we're going to sing it to each other. You may be one last spark. We all need to light the whole world. To light the whole world. Let's light the whole world. Let's light the whole world. Mm-hmm. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.